Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. Hey listeners, I'm releasing this on 13 November and obviously all eyes are on Kherson right now. I recorded this episode prior to Ukraine's retaking of Kherson city. I'm releasing this episode now and we'll discuss Kherson in a near future episode. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Colin Coe. Colin is a research fellow at the Institute of Defence and Strategic Studies at Nanyang Technology Institute in Singapore. Colin focuses in his work on naval affairs in the Asia-Pacific region, including naval modernisation and naval arms control and security building measures at sea. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Colin. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Before we look at how the current war in Ukraine might be influencing maritime security in the Southeast Asian region, as someone who does focus on the threat and use of force at sea, can you outline some existing key maritime concerns in the Southeast Asian region. Thanks so much, Jessica, for a question. Basically, when we talk about maritime security in Southeast Asia, there are a few key contexts that you need to set. One is that Southeast Asia is not a monolithic region, which therefore means we are dealing with essentially 10 different countries, at least with their varying threat perceptions. So therefore, in the maritime domain, depending on which country you are speaking to, you're very likely to get you know, varying extent of maritime security, threat perceptions, and even where there are overlaps, usually there will be differences in terms of how seriously they regard these security challenges as well as how they approach those challenges. However, you know, if we can put a general overview of the maritime security challenges in Southeast Asia, For the most part, on a daily basis, we are essentially dealing with what we usually term to call cross-border or trans-border security challenges, such as smuggling, illegal fishing, as well as human trafficking. And these are, of course, issues that cross-cut with traditional security challenges as well, because if you have to consider that in Southeast Asia, the maritime boundaries are not all resolved and there are still existing or outstanding boundary disputes and which thereby also complicates maritime jurisdictional rights as well as maritime law enforcement issues. For the outstanding disputes uh, on hand, there are tendencies in which there could be close encounters between the maritime forces of Southeast Asia over their overlapping EZACs, for example. We have seen in the recent times close encounters and standoffs between the maritime forces of Southeast Asia, such as those between Malaysia and Vietnam and those between Indonesia and Vietnam. And those incidents did not lead to the outright use of force per se, but the sort of risk in which you know, you know, they could escalate into the outright use of force is always there for sure. The final kettle of fish <laughs> in the South China Sea dispute, what many would call the tinderbox, and it is um, in fact the most important maritime flashpoint in Southeast Asia, especially when we are talking about the inclusion of a much bigger contending power in the neighborhood that is China. China doesn't subscribe to international arbitration or any other international recourse 
to resolve the dispute, it prefers a bilateral uh, resolution of the dispute that doesn't necessarily come across as comforting to a number of Southeast Asian parties in the South China Sea dispute, because unlike the case of intra-Southeast Asian disputes, we are talking about a huge asymmetry of power in this case, which may lead to the tendency or the possibility of China using its power asymmetry advantage to impress its position and interest on the other Southeast Asian party, which thereby could mean that settlement in the South China Sea dispute could well be skewed towards the favor of China. So that is the possibility uh, that Southeast Asian countries contend with. Which therefore means we are talking about essentially conflict management, not conflict resolution in the near term. And this leads to, of course, the other big kettle of fish in the South China Sea dispute when we refer to the threat and use of force, which is the involvement of extra regional presence in the South China Sea. Uh, we are talking about, say, you know, the US, Japan, India, European powers having naval presence. So even while we discount the possibility of a clash between China and Southeast Asian parties, we cannot discount the possibility of a clash between China and other extra regional powers in the South China Sea. So that is where the trend use of force come into play. And I think in the recent times, we are seeing this risk multiply because you know, we are seeing increasing presence of naval activities in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. China is a key rising power in the region. So to what extent has China been focusing on and emphasizing its maritime security concerns and maritime forces? In fact, most of the existing commentaries tend to focus on what China has done and emphasize upon its maritime interests and maritime buildup after Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. However, the entire process started way before that. His predecessors, especially when we are talking about Hu Jintao as his immediate predecessor, had already emphasized the idea of asserting China's maritime sovereignty and rights, writ large, not just in the South China Sea. That, of course, fits in more broadly with the overall ambition of China in achieving the status of so-called maritime great power status. And so in that equation, in sort of linking with the broader Chinese ambitions under Xi Jinping to achieve so-called the China dream of national rejuvenation, the assertion of Chinese maritime sovereignty and rights is paramount in that regard which therefore means that you know, after Xi Jinping came to power, we saw an unprecedented process of naval buildup in China. We are not just talking about the PLA Navy building up commensurately over these years. The rate of shipbuilding is phenomenal. It outstrips the shipbuilding rate of many other advanced navies combined, including the US Navy. So in this unprecedented naval shipbuilding process, we are also looking at the rapid buildup of China's maritime law enforcement agencies, in particular the China Coast Guard, which in recent times has become at the forefront of asserting China's sovereignty and jurisdictional rights in the South China Sea. 
in particular. So in a nutshell, when we are seeing China expanding and trying to accentuate its newfound status as a global maritime power, not just a regional maritime power as we used to know of it to be, and these does come across as uncertain to a number of regional countries because China remains writ large a sort of black box when it comes to its strategic intentions. On the one hand, it talks about diplomacy and economic cooperation, but on the other hand, we are still seeing China resorting to maritime coercion in the case of the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and to a lesser extent, the Yellow Sea, and now more recently, in the case of Taiwan Straits as well. So that doesn't seem to square with China's stated intention to address issues peacefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is quite a lot of uncertainty. And I'm curious how that is from the perspective of where you're located in Singapore. What are Singapore's key interests and concerns? To what extent is Singapore focused on those issues of maritime security? Thank you, Jessica. Singapore has, of course, over the years gained increased national power despite its geographical size. However, as a Singaporean, perhaps it might still be accurate to say that Singapore continues to maintain what we call a small state mentality. Despite its rise in its national power, Singapore is very much conscious of its position, both geopolitically as well as uh, geostrategically and even geoeconomically. There is a limit to which Singapore could assert its interests When it comes to the maritime domain, most people tend to put a lot of emphasis on what China is doing and China's behavior in the South China Sea. For Singapore, for the South China Sea, Singapore is not a claimant state and therefore we are only what some will call an interested party or stakeholder in this entire dispute. Generally, Singapore is interested in a few things. One is to preserve the international rules-based order and that of course revolves around customary international law as we know of, and more importantly, from the maritime perspective, UNCLOS, United Nations Convention of Law of the Sea, overarching instrument that underpins these rules-based orders. Second is Singapore as a small state that is highly dependent on continued access to maritime trade is definitely interested in preserving freedom of navigation and overflight in those maritime domains. Mm -hmm. Another important power in the region, not specifically in Southeast Asia, but in Mm. the region more broadly, is India, a rising power, and we could say one of the key competitors to China within the Mm. broader region. China has focused on that buildup of maritime forces. Is India similarly focusing on building their maritime forces. Thanks, Jessica. In fact, India has traditionally regarded itself as a maritime power given uh, the long coastline. The maritime interests are of one of the foremost concerns. Definitely because from your question, I could sense that you are also likely alluding to the existing border dispute with China. In 1962, India and China fought a border war And just in June 2020, there was a fatal clash for the first time in many decades between Indian and Chinese forces along the contested line of control as well. But that being the case, the land border issue had not actually doused India's appetite to further build its naval forces. 
In fact, if you look at the whole entire slate of you know, public statements as well as actions undertaken by Indian policy elites, it's very clear that they were aware if India has to be a regional power and in the future, a credible global power, then maritime power is essential. But the issue here that I always try to grapple with is very often the Indian stated ambitions do not necessarily square with the actual policy behavior. While there is definitely a desire for India to build its maritime power in general, the bureaucracy, the, the regulations, and you know, the domestic impediments very often you know, stay in the way of building those sectors. For example, shipbuilding is one area. India has stated its intentions to become one of the world's most consequential shipbuilders. However, compared to China, India still continues to fall behind in terms of shipbuilding orders worldwide. And when it comes to naval shipbuilding, in terms of the rate of shipbuilding, very often runs into problems of funding, problems of you know, having too many shipyards in question, you know, bureaucracy does stand in the way. So for India, it has always been a disconnect between its ambitions as well as its actual policy action. But going forward, what we do see is that because China has increasingly been present in the Indian Ocean, it does therefore add a sense of urgency in the Indian policy elite's perception that they need to do something as well. So we are seeing India putting in more effort in trying to overcome um, the bureaucracy while it's going to take quite some time, but at least it's encouraging to see India doing that and trying to overcome those challenges. And on the other hand, we are also seeing India reaching out more intensely towards the east, meaning uh, the east of the Malacca Strait, engaging more of its partners in Southeast Asia as well as partners further afield in Northeast Asia, such as with Japan as well as with South Korea. Mm -hmm. Turning now to the current war in Ukraine, from one perspective, Ukraine seems very far away from the Southeast Asian region. And of course, geographically, it is far away. However, on the other hand, most countries in the world have been closely watching this current conflict in Ukraine. This conflict has also included the use of maritime regions. So for you, observing the current war in Ukraine as someone who does focus on the use of force at sea and maritime security, do you see implications from that conflict for maritime security in the Southeast Asian region? The Ukraine war itself definitely has captured the attention in Asia uh, writ large. Of course, in Asia, Taiwan has been paying very likely the greatest attention to the Ukraine war because of what you saw as close parallels between itself and mainland China. And of course, um, there are contextual differences. While there are you know, naval activities that took place uh, on the Black Sea, we are talking about, for example, three main uh, episodes since uh, late February this year. Firstly, the uh, sinking of the Russian Black Sea fleet flagship Moskva by uh, Ukrainian land-based missiles. And then we saw the case of Snake Island, which was earlier contested between 
Russia and Ukraine after a series of strikes by Ukraine, the Russia's abandoned Snake Island. And then the latest episode that we saw was the drone attack on the Russian naval forces in Crimea, uh, which was in Sevastopol. So these three episodes were important, but at the same time, before I turn back to these uh, as uh, no case studies to illuminate lessons for Southeast Asia, the one thing we have to bear in mind, because very often I, I saw commentaries after the Ukraine war broke out, trying to compare the Ukraine scenario with Asia scenario. The issue here is because much of the real top actions taken uh, in the Ukraine theater is essentially what we call a land air scenario. However, in Asia, in littoral uh, Asia Pacific or Indo-Pacific, we are essentially talking about a sea air scenario. And there are clear differences and contextual factors to consider. For example, an overland invasion by Russia into Ukraine would be simpler. In a way, when I say simpler, it doesn't mean that I'm trying to undercut the complexity of combined arms operations of such a scale, but I'm simply trying to compare it with the extent to which you know, we are looking at complex joint operations that will be amphibious in nature if we are talking about a CS scenario. Whether we are talking about a Taiwan Strait scenario or we are talking about a South China Sea scenario in which, hypothetically, China might be in a position to try to seize those South China Sea features that were occupied by the other contending rivals in the area. So there are some of these clear contextual differences that we have to bear in mind. However, turning to the Ukraine war and the maritime context and the lessons that could illuminate upon Southeast Asia, I think there are some key lessons that we can draw. One is that, you know, in the Ukraine war, well highlighted that even a weaker warring party could actually hold up against a stronger party. So that is, you know, in a way, also reinforcing the earlier theoretical or conceptual understanding concerning modern missile age naval warfare. In the missile age, where, you know, missile proliferation has become more widespread, it becomes what we call sort of a multiplier in leveling the playing field between the strong and the weak. The weaker party could leverage on asymmetric means of naval capabilities to counter a stronger naval power. In this case, Ukraine has leveraged on these asymmetric strengths to counter a stronger naval power in the Black Sea, which is Russia, right? which therefore led to the sinking uh, of the Moskva. However, the caveat to add to that is that Ukraine might not have been able to pull off that particular episode that effectively, if not because it has received also support from the other parties that is outside the conflict but have key interests in the conflict. We are talking about NATO powers, for example. The US has provided intelligence that are vital for the Ukrainians to locate the vessel and to fix onto the target before they launch a missile. So that also gives another key lessons for Southeast Asian parties. In this case, Southeast Asian militaries were not alien to cooperating and promoting military interoperability with extra-regional powers that are stronger uh, than themselves. For example, the US that has been a long time offshore balancing power in Southeast Asia, as, well, as with Australia, with India, with, with Japan, we are seeing here, you know, 
increasing defense and security engagements between these powers in Southeast Asia, which therefore could mean that Southeast Asian countries took heed of what they saw in the Ukraine war, which thereby lead them to believe that it is increasingly more important to build this cooperation with stronger extra-regional powers that have the intelligence capacity as well as the military kinetic capacity that could come in handy in any future conflict in the region as well. The third lesson to learn, which stems from the, the first lesson about how weaker power could prevail in certain contexts against a stronger power, is that increasingly, you know, there will be more attention being put onto emerging technologies. And for Southeast Asian militaries, this is something that they have been looking at in the past, but the Ukraine war reinforced the perception that unmanned systems in particular will become more and more important. The cyberspace is going to become another contested environment to look at um, that will feature in future warfare in Southeast Asia. So they are trying to deal with that. However, while this sort of lesson is being learned and they are certainly being paid some attention to, I, I do also have questions concerning how well Southeast Asian militaries, if not all of them, some of them maybe might be in a position to assimilate such technologies and know-how into their existing doctrine. Because if you recall my very first outline of the maritime security challenges in Southeast Asia, military forces and even maritime civilian agencies in Southeast Asia are largely preoccupied with and largely trained and equipped to deal with so-called low-intensity operations for the most part. So when it comes to dealing with smuggling issues, piracy, illegal fishing, they might have been in a position to deal with that. Even though, even for some of the Southeast Asian uh, militaries and coast guards, they still lack capacity and capabilities to effectively police their waters against those threats. So when we talk about high-end, or high-intensity operations, this is where there are clear gaps that exist in terms of doctrinal implications, in terms of equipment, in terms of the human capital that is able to absorb such technologies. So in these Southeast Asian countries, not just pay heed to the lessons, but they also need to take action to rectify those shortcomings as well. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to see those lessons. It's another thing to actually be able to integrate them into mm. policy and operations. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, some parallels have been drawn to Taiwan and China. As you already mentioned, there are clear differences between these two cases. But do you think, you know, like the rest of the world, China is also closely watching what's happening in Ukraine and Russia's full-scale invasion? Do you think that this war makes it more or less likely that China might attempt some kind of military operation to reintegrate Taiwan into mainland China in the near term? This is a very good question and that, of course, reminds us of these very recent talks in the US about timelines, right? They talk about 2025 and then talk about 2027 and then some, you know, talk about 2030. You know, the timeline appears to be shrinking increasingly, especially after the Ukraine war broke out. I have some clear reservations about timelines because... Of course, for China, in the recent times, you also may notice that 
they were talking about reunification with Taiwan, not in terms of timeline. They don't really put a timeline into it. That could be explained by the fact that they are very likely already looking at the Ukraine war. And there is every reason to be 100% sure that they are already drawing lessons from the Ukraine war. Because one thing to note is that over these few years, as part of China's military modernization, Russia has clearly been one of the role models that they try to emulate. I mean, for the PLA, when they modernized over these years, they have largely taken the cue from the United States. And the United States provided a huge reservoir of inspirations for the PLA when it comes to modernization. However, the issue here is that US-China military engagements were considered very minimal. And after Trump came to power in the US, these engagements had almost, you know, dipped into near zero level, right? So we are talking about, for example, uh, back in 2018, the PLA Navy was no longer invited to the Rim of Pacific exercises that were held in Hawaii. RIMPAC would have been one of the key exercises that China is extremely interested to attend, uh, not just for prestige reasons, because given that RIMPAC is the world's largest multilateral naval exercise, but RIMPAC gives China a rare opportunity to get up close to watch what other navies are doing. In particular, they get to see what the US Navy is doing. They get to see how US and allied navies are doing as well. And they try to draw lessons from there to try to boost their own build-up and modernization. Now, all these opportunities were no longer existent under the current political climate, which therefore means that China's engagements with Russia has in the recent years become even more important. We saw China uh, building increasing military interoperability with Russia through a few exercises. For example, there is a series of naval exercises that China and Russia were undertaking in the recent years, what they call the Joint Sea Series. Sometimes it will be held in the East China Sea, sometimes it will be held closer to Russia. Uh, and then, of course, China's recent participation in the Vostok series exercises, um, that is for the land forces and the air forces for sure, but that is one of Russia's most major exercises, and that gives China an insight into how to conduct large-scale combat operations. So China has, in the recent years, been watching closely what Russia is doing, and it might have probably assumed that the Ukraine war might be over in days, given Russia's perceived military preponderance compared to Ukraine, but it came very likely as a huge shocker to China that not only the war has dragged out into months and probably into an indefinite future, but the Russian military, in terms of its doctrine, in terms of its training, in terms of its equipment, has grossly underperformed beyond expectation. So that will come across as very alarming to China, given, as I mentioned earlier, its military modernization is patterned very closely to Russia. So even as we are talking right now, China has already been conducting reviews of what they saw as lessons from Russia, and that will require China to go back to its drawing board uh, when it comes to its PLA reforms and modernization, and then it will need to tweak some of its existing assumptions and then you will have to sort of rejig 
some of its modernization approaches. These processes will take time. The PLA isn't an animal that is well known for being quick to adapt and quick to act. So it will take some time, uh, which means that we're looking at at least a few more years with Xi Jinping's securing of his third term in power after the recent 20th Party Congress, we are seeing a reinvigorated effort to put more effort into the PIA modernization. And what we're seeing here is Xi Jinping and you know, his close aides in the Politburo are putting more closer attention on the PIA modernization. And that is very likely motivated by what they saw in Ukraine. That'll take time. So I don't think we are going to see a sort of a full-scale invasion to reunify with Taiwan in the next two to three years. I think if we want to really put a ballpark timeline, even though I don't really believe in timeline, uh, but in that respect, I think five years is probably the minimum that we should be looking at in terms of how the PLA draw lessons from Ukraine and readjust its force structure and, and build up going forward. Yeah, and of course, the war in Ukraine is still ongoing. So some of those lessons still need to be drawn from what's going to happen in the next few months or even longer. Thanks, Colin. I really appreciate you being with me on the podcast today. This has been a really informative and interesting analysis. Thank you so much, Jessica. And I look forward to working with you again. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music. 